Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash art of man and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash art of man, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash art of man. Thanks for your help. McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast, Procrastination. We've all done it and we tell ourselves we'll never do it again, so we come up with elaborate time management systems to get us back on track, only to find ourselves continuing to put things off. While some procrastination can be mildly infuriating, chronic procrastination can be financially, professionally, and personally devastating. Overdue bills result in calls from collection agencies, late reports result in getting fired, and undone chores turn your house into a dump. Why do we procrastinate despite our best intentions not to, and despite knowing the fact that it hurts us. Well, my guests today are clinical psychologists who have spent their career working with procrastinators. Their names are Jane Burka and Lenora Ewan. They're the co-authors of the book, Procrastination, Why You Do It, What to Do About It Now. And today on the show, we begin our conversation discussing the difference between procrastination and strategically putting things off or postponing things. They then take us through the cycle of procrastination that we've all been through and explain why it's such a vicious loop. We then transition to talk about why we procrastinate and why faulty time management is isn't the actual root cause of most procrastination. Jane and Lenore argue that if we don't tackle the true origin of procrastination, which can range from fear of failure to perfectionism to fear of success, no amount of time management or planning will help you. We dig in on how to tackle these roots so you can exit the procrastinator cycle and get stuff done. This podcast is filled with great insights and actionable advice. Don't put off listening to it. Do it today. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash procrastination. Jane Burka, Lenora Ewan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brett. Hi, nice to be here. All right, so you two are psychologists who have specialized in procrastination, which I think is interesting. It's, a, it's an interesting topic to decide, you know, you're gonna, that's what you're going to go in deep. So I'm curious, how did you two get interested in studying that particular experience? And how did you two connect and start working together to write this book back in 1983 and then, you know, doing a second edition, updated edition, you know, almost 20 years later? 25. It was the 25th anniversary. Yes. Well, we met when we were both on the staff at the counseling center at the University of California, Berkeley, and decided to offer a procrastination group for students. And as you might imagine, procrastination is pretty much rampant on every college campus. So it was a very popular group. But why procrastination? Well, Jane and I, 
each had a lifetime of experience, of personal insider experience of procrastinating. Yes. For example, when I went to graduate school in New York, it took me 10 years to finish, to get my dissertation done. I, I sped through classes, and then when it came time for the dissertation, I just couldn't do it. And so it was a very painful experience, actually, because people who started after me were finishing. I had a job. I was working in my field, but I didn't have my PhD. I couldn't be licensed. I I couldn't hang out my shingle. And so it was a very difficult struggle. And it got to the point where I didn't want to talk to my advisor. Then I didn't want to go to the building where my advisor was. Then I didn't want to get off the bus near the building where my advisor was. You know, I was really in major avoidance. And so both Lenora and I know what it is to suffer when you put things off. And we also know, I'm happy to say, what it is to mostly overcome that problem because both of us now are really pretty good. So were there a lot of people researching procrastination back when you originally published your book? No, not at all. There were a couple of books about procrastination that basically said, okay, just do it. You know, don't be, you know, be rational, be reasonable. And, you know, it's very simple. Just manage your time and set goals and just do it. Um, there was no research to speak of at that time. None at all, really. Yeah, and now there are pro- oh, probably well over a thousand research studies, maybe many more than that, and many people around the world who are actually studying this. So we feel very proud, actually, to have had a part in highlighting a problem that really can plague people. On the surface, it can look you know, like not a big deal or something to joke about. I can't tell you how many procrastination jokes we've heard. People, you know, try to find a way to make light of it. But really, as Jane was saying, people can suffer really significant consequences. And let, let, let me also say that procrastination in and of itself isn't good or bad. It's not even always a problem. You know, we all procrastinate on little things or things that don't really matter to us. But what we're talking about here is the procrastination that we do in addressing things that are really important to us, that we really want to do or that we need to do. And then when we don't do them, we end up suffering consequences in the world or consequences within ourselves of feeling just awful that really end up being self-defeating. So one of the things that we've said for decades now is that we are not anti-procrastination, but we are anti-self-defeat. Because procrastination is self-sabotage. And so, you know, people think that especially people who don't procrastinate, they don't understand it at all. Like, you know, I can get my work done, why can't you? But procrastination, when it has this self-sabotaging function, is much more psychological than it is about just being rational or or getting things done in a timely way, you know, being being behavioral. But the, the research now around procrastination is interesting because we always talk about procrastination being related to perfectionism. And some of the research has indicated that 
procrastination and perfectionism are not related, but we challenge that because those research studies use self-report. They ask people, are you a perfectionist? And then the people say yes or no. Well, most procrastinators don't notice that they're perfectionistic. In fact, they say, I'm not a perfectionist. I don't get my work done on time. But perfectionism is an attitude. So we, we are clinicians, and that means that we have seen perfectionism in most of the people we see who have a problem with procrastination. So even the research that has come out isn't always clinically accurate, in our opinion. So yeah, I'd love to get into some of what you guys see as the root causes, and this idea of procrastination being self-sabotage. But let's go back to this idea, what is procrastination? And you mentioned sort of, you gave a good definition, but I'm curious, I'm always, whenever I'm looking at my to-do list and I put something off, I'm wondering, is this procrastination or am I tabling this because it's just not the, the right time to do this? So how do, you, how do you all differentiate between like tabling an item and okay, you you are now officially procrastinating. Well, you know, as I said earlier, sometimes procrastination is not a problem, and sometimes tabling something is really the very best thing for you to do. You know, let's face it, we're all way too busy these days. We all have too much to do. You can't do it all. Something's got to give. So if you table something because you have more important issues to deal with or actions to take, that may be a good thing. If you table something because you really need to take a little more time to think it through and weigh your options, that may be a good thing. I think the way to tell whether you are entering this territory of self-sabotage or self-defeat with procrastination is to look at the consequences. You know, are you getting yourself into trouble? Are you being passed over for promotions? Are, is your partner getting pissed off at you all the time because you're late all the time? Or, you know, your partner asks you to do something and you don't, and then they feel thwarted and they're mad. Are you having to pay penalties to the IRS because you didn't file your taxes or maybe even not collecting refunds that are due to you because you haven't filed your taxes? You'd be surprised how many people don't file their taxes even when they have money coming back. So Lenora is talking about the external consequences, the consequences in the world, in your job or in your relationships, but then there are also internal consequences. And those are the kind of feelings and upset, anxiety, shame, humiliation, the feeling that you're a fraud. You know, if you manage to pull it out at the last minute and it's good enough, you know, then you feel like, well, I fooled him. So you, you can be, you can get it done, but you have a feeling of fraudulence. There's so much anxiety connected to procrastination as the deadline approaches and you haven't done it. There's a lot of shame in feeling like you're behind again. And so the internal consequences of bad feelings, that's part of it. And then there are also physical consequences sometimes. You know, if you build up a lot of anxiety, you can get an ulcer, you can get headaches, you can get high blood pressure. I think that if you look at the consequences on a continuum, the more serious the consequences, internal and external, the more likely procrastination really is a problem. 
And, you know, Brett, I also would like to say that sometimes people don't think of it as procrastinating, but it was very much avoidance. Like for me, that took one of the the forms that took was math anxiety. My father was an engineer and math was easy for him and it was not easy for me. And I avoided every complicated math class that I could because I only wanted to get A's and I knew that I wouldn't get a, an A in math. So that is a more subtle form of procrastination, but it's avoidance nonetheless. Gotcha. So in the book, you talk about this idea of the cycle of procrastination. When you describe this cycle, it's like, I've been there. So can you kind of walk us through that cycle and how does this cycle perpetuate itself? Well, it perpetuates. It's the cycle of procrastination is this typical pattern of a feeling in the beginning like, well, I know I'm supposed to do something, but I don't have to do it yet. And there's more time. And maybe the deadline is not really very firm and you don't really take it that seriously. And then as time passes and you realize that really it, it is something you should be doing. Then there's the buildup of anxiety, like, oh, I better get going. And some people at that point go to the movies, you know, and some people at that point actually might start, but maybe they haven't really allowed enough time. So as the deadline approaches, there's this, this terrible buildup feeling of, well, I just have to get it done now, you know, and I'm going to pull an all-nighter. I'm going to spend all weekend. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And when somebody finally gets started, most of the time there's a feeling like, you know, this isn't so bad. I don't know why I waited so long to do this. And then when the time comes that the thing is over, if you have achieved it, you feel like, oh, thank goodness, I finally made it and I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to procrastinate again. And then the, the, it's also possible that the deadline passes. You haven't done what you needed to do. You didn't turn in the application for the job. You know, you didn't pay on time. And then you feel terrible about yourself. You know, I'm such an idiot. Why did I do this to myself again? So that's the cycle. And it perpetuates itself because there's a kind of a magical feeling that next time it's going to be different. And if you don't do anything different or think through things differently, it's not going to be different next time. That's wishful thinking. And you all talked about earlier how when you first started with your research, most of the books about procrastination out there were about like, oh, you procrastinate, just do it, get a better time management system, prioritize your task, et cetera, et cetera. But you all argue that the problem runs deeper than that. You can do those things and it's probably not going to help you. So let's dig into the root causes of procrastination. We'll, we can go into specifics later on, but what are generally the the big overarching reasons why people procrastinate? Well, I think that probably what we would say is that the big issue is a feeling of unworthiness that takes the form of feeling afraid, of feeling vulnerable, of feeling, as Jane mentioned earlier, a sense of shame about who you really are or what you really can do and what you really think. And so procrastination becomes a, a way of managing very vulnerable feelings and fears that you're really not good enough. 
a fear of insufficiency of one sort or another. And, it, and I think for men, it, there's a lot of fear about being weak or about not, somehow not being big enough, strong enough, not measuring up, not measuring up. Procrastination can be a way not to quite feel those feelings directly and to, and, and to retreat and avoid those difficult feelings. So what we're saying is that procrastination, oddly enough, it's kind of paradoxical. It's the lesser of evils because you get upset with yourself for procrastinating. And that's something that's very ordinary and that people can accept about themselves. You know, I waited too long. I should have started sooner. I didn't leave enough time. Those are acceptable self-criticisms. Whereas I'm afraid, I'm afraid I'm not good enough. I'm afraid if I give all the time I have and try my best and it's still not good enough, that's something they don't have to face when you procrastinate. So it's kind of a paradoxical solution to a problem of self-esteem. So yeah, so there's a fear of failure is one of those things. And I think that's where the perfectionism comes in, right? The perfectionists, they're afraid of failing, afraid of being less than perfect. And so to protect themselves from that feeling of failure, they, procrast- they put things off. Right. You know, we, you bring up fear of failure. The main three fears that we have unearthed are fear of failure, fear of success, and fear of feeling controlled. So fear of failure, as you say, is really rooted in that basic feeling that you're not good enough and the anxiety that that is going to be known, that you're going to be exposed as not good enough. And so you feel like everything you do has your whole worth riding on it. And so if you wait until the last minute and then you do something and it's, it's okay, you can feel like, oh, well, I'm really terrific and, and then I'm not a failure. But if you wait a long time and it's not good enough, that's a terrible, terrible feeling. So people delay in order not to do their best, in order never to test whether their best is good enough. Because they can say, well, you know, if I had more time, if I got started earlier, it would have been better. But I, you know, I, I did good enough for the amount of time I, I had. That's right. So paradoxically, procrastination allows you to relax that standard of perfectionism. You know, because when you wait till the last minute, you, you can't do it perfectly anymore. You know, all you can do is just get the darn thing done. And so what's being evaluated really is your skill at brinksmanship rather than what is your best effort. Your best effort stays hidden and unknown to other people and sadly to yourself. And I thought the interesting thing was the fear of success. Cause like you're thinking, oh, it's success. Why would, why would anyone be afraid of success? So first off, like why are people afraid of success and how does that perpetuate procrastination? Well, everybody makes the assumption that we all want to be successful and more successful and more successful, but actually success is like a rose with a lot of thorns on it. You know, there are real dangers to success for some people. For example, if you are the first person in your family to go to college and you do well in college, the consequence of that is that it puts you at a much greater distance from your family. 
They don't know what your life is like. They haven't been through this experience. You can't talk to them, get advice from them. So the farther you move away and become more successful than people in your own family, the more difficult it is. It feels like a threat to relationship. And in other relationships, you know, for many people, there's an experience of competition. Now, the competition may not be overt. It might just be in your own mind. But, you know, there it feels like they're winners or losers. And theoretically, you'd want to win. But what if you do? What if you end up being at the top? For, for some people, being the winner brings with it worries about being envied or having other people want to really compete with you and bring, they want to be at the top and they want to get you out of the number one position. So there's, again, a sense of exposure and a kind of vulnerability in being at the top that some people avoid with procrastination. You know, one young man we talked to many years ago said, you know, success is kind of like an escalator. You take a step on and there's no place off until you get to the top. And what if you don't want to be at the top? You know, what if it makes you anxious to think about being at the top? Procrastination can be a way not to get on that escalator to success. I guess another fear of success could be the fear of like added responsibility. Added responsibility. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And also then, you know, being closer to the decision makers. And sometimes you might want to be a person who, you know, carries out decisions, but you don't want to be the decision maker. I worked with someone who took a job, really liked his boss, didn't very much like the guy who was above his boss. And after about six months on the job, his boss left and went to a different position. He was now moved into that slot so that he had to deal directly with the guy at the top. And it was not an easy relationship and it really affected his feelings about his job. And he slowed down his work. He, he didn't really want to be in that position. He started procrastinating on his work. The guy, his boss got irritated. He got in trouble. You know, his job went from being a pleasure to being miserable. So even though he got a promotion, it was not a promotion that he wanted or enjoyed or did well at. And I think connected to this fear of success is like the fear of control. Because as you get more successful, yes, you gain some freedom, but you also become more constricted in a lot of ways because you have these added responsibilities. So let's talk about that, that fear of loss of control. Well, you know, for some people, I mean, we all need to feel like we can control some of the aspects of our lives. If, if we don't, it, it's a very kind of hopeless, helpless feeling to, to feel that you have to be passive. But there are some people who ha have a lot of sensitivity to the issues of control and who define their own sense of their self in terms of their capacity not to be controlled or to or their, their feeling that they are autonomous, nobody can tell them what to do, the rules don't apply to them. You know, so for these people, procrastination can be a way to assert autonomy and preserve a sense of strength and power. 
Now, it's all indirect. It's not directly saying, you know, I've got control. But indirectly, you say, you can't make me do what you want to do. I'm going to, I'm the boss. And I'm only going to do what I want to do. And at the time, I want to do it. (laughs) Right. It's passive aggressive. Yes, that's right. Because you don't say to your supervisor, um, I don't like the way you're talking to me. I don't like the way you're treating me. I think you're giving me too much work and too little time, which of course is very common nowadays. But you don't have the conversation. You just don't do the work. Or the same may happen with a spouse. That happens a lot of the time, you know, that people, rather than having direct conversations about negotiating, you know, tasks in the household or priorities that may be different between the two spouses and trying to work out those differences, simply go into this mode of saying yes, and but not doing what you've agreed to do. You know, and if you are someone for whom cooperation feels like capitulation, then working out differences is going to be really difficult because it ends up feeling like you lose every time. That if you go along with the other person, that again, that you are diminished, you are disempowered, you are weak. And where do these fears, like where do they originate? Is it like a childhood thing? Is it your rearing like, are there different things that cause maybe a fear of failure or a fear of success or a fear of, fear of control? Well, you're right that these things do start in the family. I think there's no direct correlation that will create one or the other of these anxieties. But there's a general feeling in your family as you're growing up that your value is not just because you're a great kid, you know, that you're, you as a person are not what makes you worthwhile. That what makes you worthwhile is something else. Like, did you get an A? Did you get an A plus? You know, a lot of pressure to succeed. Did Um, you hit a home run? Right. Right. (laughs) Or strike out. Mm -hmm. And so, if you know, if you feel like your value is based on your performance, then there's a lot of anxiety about how well you're going to do. And that can lead to a fear of failure then it's possible that growing up, there were people who were envious of your talents. And so maybe you were successful, but you got mocked for your success, or you were told not to brag too much because it would upset one of your siblings, you know, or you were given opportunities that your family hadn't had. And even if they want you to do well on some level, they're also envious and you can sense that. So that's where you learn that success can be dangerous. You know, when you're successful, you can be a target. And of course, the issue of control, in in many families, kids grow up in a very controlling environment. They They feel controlled rather than guided. And when you have grown up feeling like, you know, you are just fitting into someone else's system, and you don't get to make a lot of choices for yourself, then that's where your autonomy feels compromised. And preserving your autonomy, your freedom, your sense of individuality becomes way more important 
and getting things done on time. And besides these psychoanalytical reasons for procrastination, this like, I guess, the, the nurture part, um, you also highlight research that biology or nature might play a role and interact with our environment to, you know, cr- you know, create the habit of procrastination. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. You know, we all have different genes. We have different brains. The way our brains work is different. Most of us have what we call neurotypical brains, you know, kind of everyday capacities to manage our workflow, to plan, to organize, to monitor ourselves. But some of us have real difficulty. We talk about this as executive function. A lot of the organizational capacity of our brain to to get ourselves to work toward goals. Um, People who have executive function problems with the way their brains work will often have trouble with time. You know, people with Attention deficit disorder are notorious for being blindsided by time. You know, they're kind of bopping along, you know, getting distracted by this and that and having a, an immersive experience in whatever present moment shiny thing is captivating their attention. And they forget the deadline is, you know, coming up and boom, all of a sudden they're hit by something that feels like it's coming completely out of the blue. And when you have trouble being aware of time and monitoring time, procrastination is going to be a much more likely part of your experience. It's also true that there's a difference between objective time and subjective time. So objective time is clock time, calendar time, inexorable. It just keeps moving. Whereas subjective time is a person's experience of time. And that's another sort of biological contribution because your experience of time varies based on your emotion, your arousal, your own circadian rhythm. You know, time can seem to go really fast in the morning and then at night it feels like it it goes on forever. The, um, when, when you have a, a subjective sense of time that is off from clock time, different from clock time, you can think to yourself, well, you know, it's, it's only 15 minutes. It doesn't matter if I'm 15 minutes late because to you, that's true. And to somebody else, if you're 15 minutes late, buddy, you're late. So one of the things that's really complicated with this issue of procrastination is that there are many, many underpinnings for it and many different pathways to the position of struggling with getting things done. Most all procrastinators, I think, are unrealistic about time in one way or another. They often tend to either overestimate how long things will take so that the task looks so horrible and so unapproachable, they just feel overwhelmed and they won't do it. Or they tend to underestimate how long things will take. And so they expect to breeze through, like, you know, as Jane was saying, oh, you know, that'll just, you know, 15 minutes. That's all I need. And then it takes them three hours. So there 
can be psychological aspects to being unrealistic about time, as well as, you know, sort of some of these biological components that make it very hard to monitor time. And then, you know, that issue of control that we were talking about earlier, you know, some people want to say time is has no control over me. You know, <laughs> I'm not limited by time. I'm not defined by time. And I mean, it's a, a grand delusion that gets them into trouble. But that sense of being autonomous and powerful is so important that even facing the reality of the inexorability of time is unbearable. I just want to add to what Lenore is saying about reality, because that is a theme that underlies a lot of what we're talking about, that procrastinators are really not good at accepting certain realities. They may be very well oriented to reality in a hundred ways, but not oriented to reality in very specific ways, like the reality of time passing, the reality of how long things take, the reality of limitations. You know, we all have limitations. We're better at some things than others. We can only go so far. And yet, if you, a procrastinator really does not want to accept limitations. So that's part of avoiding doing your best and having it evaluated because you don't want to know where your limitations are. And also, there's the reality that people don't accept that different brains work differently, like Lenora said. You know, if, if I think that I have to be good at everything, but my brain isn't going to let me. I personally, Jane, I'm terrible at spatial relations. I'm in the bottom three percentile on spatial relations. So if I'm trying to do something that involves spatial relations, like find her way to a location. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> North, south, east, west, what's that? So I can't do it. And that makes me want to avoid having to deal with anything that is going to demonstrate how bad I am at spatial relations. So you procrastinate on things that you're not good at. But if you can accept that there's some things you're better at than others, that my brain works very well in terms of vocabulary, but not very well in terms of spatial relations, if I can accept that that's my weakness, I can compensate for it. I can have maps. Now, thank God they have Siri. You know, I can find my way. But I can do that now without getting mad at myself for being so bad at spatial relations. And you can hear in what Jane was talking about the way in which shame complicates this whole picture. Because if facing reality means to you that there's you're having to face your own insufficiency in some way, the way, some way in which you are less than you should be, then in feeling so badly about yourself and feeling that you're not a good person or you're not really lovable because of having these, quote, defects, then, you know, uh, facing the reality is unbearable. But if you can connect to really, it's a common humanity. The fact that everybody has limitations, that having limitations is not something you need to be ashamed of. 
and that you can still have a lot to offer. You can still be loved. You can still be respected. You can still be strong, even with limitations. Then in that kind of acceptance, there's the possibility of, you know, being kind to yourself rather than, as Jane was saying, you know, completely denigrating yourself and being really harsh and self-critical. And it's possible to then find ways to make life work really well for you and to be full of all kinds of pleasures and satisfactions. So just to make sure I understand what you guys are saying here, what you're saying is that you might be a procrastinator, but only in certain aspects of your life. That's true. People usually don't procrastinate on everything. You know, usually there are some areas that they procrastinate on and not others. And sometimes that can be a real entryway into understanding what it is that is at stake for you emotionally and psychologically. So if you find that you put off things that other people ask you to do versus if you put off things that are just for you, those are two very different psychological pictures. And so it's likely that those have different psychological roots. So if you put off what other people ask you to do, we're now dealing with the area probably of control. And if you put off doing just things that are for you, you know, then we have to look at perfectionism, fear of failure, fear of success. So it's very important to identify the areas where procrastination causes you the most trouble. And that is, as Lenora said, an entryway into understanding what's underneath. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to make because I think often what you'll see procrastinators do, not all, but they'll see themselves procrastinating in one area of their life and then they universalize it. Like, oh, I'm a procrastinator in all aspects of my life. Well, it's no, not really. It's just that one part. And so you end up feeling worse, which perpetuates the cycle of procrastination. Right, exactly. You feel less and less of a person, really, you know, and then feeling worse, you're more likely to keep avoiding more things. That's, yeah. Laura, were you going to say something? Well, I, I was just thinking about a time in my life that was really revelatory for me. It was a a specific moment. I, like Jane, struggled with my, the writing of my dissertation. And I also started avoiding my advisor. I wouldn't call him and I wouldn't, you know, he was there to help me, but it didn't feel that way to me. It felt like he was there to judge me and scold me. And so I was you know, walking around in quite a conundrum. And I remember walking down the street in San Francisco and suddenly having this realization that I felt scared. And I'd never really thought about that before. And I hadn't started doing procrastination groups with Jane, you know, so we hadn't been talking about that before. But it was just like, oh my gosh, I'm afraid of to call this guy. And suddenly when I had a name for this sort of agitated feeling of dread and anxiety and whatnot, I, I felt freer. It, it was sort of unexpected. But once I 
actually was able to say to myself, I'm scared and I'm afraid that he's not going to like me anymore. And he's going to think that I'm stupid instead of thinking that I'm, you know, a really smart student. I suddenly could think to myself, well, you know what? Everybody is scared. Being scared is actually a very human experience and you can do this anyway. You can do this even though you are afraid. And, and that becomes, you know, it touches on another aspect of the perfectionism. A lot of times people feel like they cannot take action unless they feel a certain way. You know, they feel completely confident completely certain about what they're going to do. Waiting for all the stars to align. Absolutely. For me, it was, you know, feeling certain about what grade I was going to get in a class, you know, ahead of time before I even enrolled in the class. I wanted to feel certain about the grade. And if you can let go of the idea that you have to feel a certain way, then if, if you're feeling scared or anxious or guilty or whatever, you can still take action. And actually, so that that moment was an important moment for me because when I thought about that, I actually then went and called my advisor and we set up an appointment and he was really glad to hear from me. And he said, how can I help you? And I think one of the things I also have realized since then, I didn't think about it at the time, But since then, I've really come to understand that in terms of my own family background, you know, my parents were very good parents in in many, many ways. They loved me a lot. They did expect me to be the star, which was quite a burden. But when it came to feelings of vulnerability, they were really uncomfortable with those feelings. So if I was scared about something or anxious about something, usually those kinds of feelings were met with either dismissiveness, something like, oh, there's nothing to be afraid about, or, oh, you're not afraid. You're not really afraid. You can do, you know, or something worse, contempt, like, don't be ridiculous. You know, why would you ever feel that? Or those feelings were simply ignored. So fear in my family wasn't, it wasn't acknowledged. It didn't exist as a, a feeling that was valid or understandable or normal. And I actually learned not to turn to my parents for comfort when I was afraid. And feeling afraid was something I was ashamed of. You know, it was easier to feel anxious and guilty about being late or frenzied at the last minute. I'd feel a little ditzy or something like that, rather than to feel afraid and become the object of scorn. You know, I didn't even let myself know that I was afraid until that moment that I was walking on the streets of San Francisco and had that realization that I just plain old was scared and that that was okay. I think that a lot of people, when we talk about these fears, fear of failure, fear of success, fear of feeling control, they don't necessarily recognize fear. You know, it's like they think that we're, you know, overstating it. But people don't recognize fear, partly because of what Lenora is saying. They're not allowed to know that they're afraid. It's not 
a language of emotions that has become part of their vocabulary. So when we say fear of failure, we don't mean that you're shaking in your boots. We mean that there is some deep level of anxiety or uncertainty about your worth. So, you know, it's important to know that sometimes you're afraid, but you don't recognize it, just like Lenora was saying. So it sounds like the first step of beating procrastination and getting to the root of these psychological causes is recognize the fear, name it. But what else can you do after that? I mean, I guess there's different, probably different things you need to be doing and those different fears, the fear of failure. Well, and I would also, Brett, say that, you know, I, I would take issue with the question of, is it the first step? For many people, the first step is actually to set up some action items, some to do steps. The problem, and, and those, you know, all of those time management techniques, all of the goal setting techniques, one of the kind, kinds of things we do talk about all the time with people is to set your goal, to break it down into small steps, to use small bits of time, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, all of those kinds of techniques, they really are valuable and they work, but they only work if you use them. And the thing about procrastination is that as people take action, what they're moving into, what they are going to confront are these fears and anxieties that they've been avoiding when they've avoided the action. This, this is why simple time management techniques or symposia don't really work because we tried this when we first did our procrastination groups. We thought, well, we'll just have people set goals and you know, we'll try to make the goals very specific and something very observable and concrete and realistic yeah not vague and off in the clouds and you know I'm going to change my life tomorrow so people would set goals and they would say here's what I'm going to do for next week and almost all the time they didn't do it and they were surprised they sort of thought well you know if you tell me how to go about this that'll take care of it but it almost never happened. There are a few people who can really take these techniques and apply them and use them. And, you know, I think for them, time management and goal setting books are really extremely valuable. But for the people where procrastination has gotten them in trouble, it, it, it's, that's not sufficient. And so we would find out that people couldn't do these rather simple, I mean, on the surface, simple steps. So, in a way, it's important to try to do these technical things. You, you make a goal for yourself that makes sense. It's realistic. You can do it in a limited amount of time. You figure out what your first step is. You spend 15 minutes on the first step and then see what happens. So we view goal setting as an experiment. It's not like homework. It's an experiment. You try it and you see what happens. And that's going to give you a clue about how much of a stranglehold procrastination has. And seeing what happens includes trying to pay attention to what your own inner experience is. Because most people don't really reflect on 
What are they thinking about? What are they feeling? So part of the experiment is trying to get to know yourself. And we really see the behavioral techniques as something that need to work hand in hand with self-understanding and ultimately an attitude of self-compassion. Because procrastinators are really judgmental of themselves. They're putting themselves down all the time. And actually in you know the recent years, there's been a body of research that has demonstrated that being self-critical actually does not help you achieve goals that you want. In fact, it, it makes you want to avoid tasks more than keep working at tasks. Even though a lot of times people think that by being self-critical, they're being tough and they're pushing themselves ahead and they're really going to keep themselves on track and they're going to, you know, be really beat this thing. Um, it turns out that being self-critical works more often against you and being compassionate toward yourself, being accepting and forgiving of mistakes you make or ways in which you don't quite you know, achieve the, the goal that you set exactly the way you thought you would, that will help you you know, keep going. And and really, this is a long-term process. It's not glamorous. It's not magical. It's not instantaneous. It's daily work of taking one step at a time and valuing every step that you make. You know, Lenora mentioned getting to know yourself better. And there are some of the techniques that we recommend in our book that encourage people to get to know themselves better. So for example, we talk about looking at your calendar for the coming week and take note of all the things that you already know you're going to do. So if you fill in your calendar with all the things that happen every day and the meetings you have and when you take the kids to school and you know when you go out for a drink after work or you know everything that you do, then the time that's left over that's the most amount of time you have to work on something that needs to be done. And it, it, that's one of those things that comes as a surprise to people, how little time they actually have that isn't already accounted for. So that's a way of getting to know yourself, to know how your time actually is spent. And you can get to know yourself also in terms of um, this tendency, your tendency to either overestimate or underestimate time by picking a goal, making a guess as to how long it will take you to do it, especially, you know, a small, modest step. And people are often surprised because their estimates are way off base. So that is another way to get to know something about who you are and the way that you are likely to distort reality. Yeah, I love that what you all said earlier about treating this all as an experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, because experiment, like there's no stakes, right? Like, you know, uh, if you fail, there's information there that's useful. If you're a success, great. I've noticed you know, when, I've, when I've gotten stuck on something, the, like the really small experiment that I do is like, okay, I'm just going to like, if I have a big article to write or when I was in law school and I had my law review to work on, like just thinking about 
writing the, the law review article is like, oh my gosh, just fills you with dread. I'm sure it's sort of like a d- dissertation, but not as bad. Um, oh, it could be but I was just like, okay. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I was just like, okay, I'm just going to write for 10 minutes. That's exactly. it. Exactly. And I kind of, I would free write and it was just complete garbage. And I would give myself permission to write garbage. And what was interesting, after 10 minutes, I put a timer on. I would. I was like, oh, this actually feels pretty good. I'm in a groove here. I'll keep going. Well, that, yeah, that's actually one of the things we recommend to people is to set a timer for a small amount of time just to get started. What you were able to do was just get started. And very often when you do that, you find, like you said, you're in a groove. You can keep going. People put off getting started, but actually it's, it's very helpful. And the other thing you did that was so useful is you said, I gave myself permission to write garbage. You maybe would be surprised as a professional writer, how many people cannot bear to write garbage? You know, they can't stand to have the first paragraph be anything but perfect. And so they're writing the first paragraph over and over and over again. So, in fact, that makes me think about a woman in one of our very first procrastination groups who was suffering terrible writer's block on her, on a paper. And what she said was, I feel that the first draft has to be of Nobel Prize winning quality. When you've got that kind of demand, who can write anything, right? (laughs) And you got yourself out of that dilemma, Brett. Right. But, you know, a lot of people don't realize that a first attempt is not what is going to be visible. See, when you procrastinate, then yes, your first attempt often is what's visible because you've waited so long. But, you know, Blenora and I have both published and I've had people say to me, well, I can't, I can't write anything that, that comes out well. When I write, it, it's terrible. And I say, my writing is terrible. I'm a bad writer, but I'm a good editor. So I know that my first draft is going to be boring. <laughs> and, and then Lenora or somebody else can help make it better. Or I often can go back and make it better. But I have to tolerate you know, writing something that I know is bad in order to get to the point of doing it better. And if you don't allow enough time, not just in writing, but in any project, to give yourself a chance to mess around with it, to do it in a messy way, in an imperfect way, you know, in in an approximate way, and then have the confidence that you can make it better, that's the procrastination doesn't allow you to do any of that. Well, Jane, Lenore, this has been a fascinating conversation, a great one. We covered a lot of ground, I feel like. Yes, we did. Well, this is a very complex topic, and there is a lot of ground to cover. And there's a lot more to cover. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. In our book, we, we elaborate on all of these themes. The book is called Procrastination, Why You Do It, What to Do About It Now. And it's available... On Amazon, it's available in Kindle form. There's an audio tape. So those are ways. There's a a blog on the Psychology Today website about procrastination. So we, our book has a website. So those are all ways you can find out more. Fantastic. Well, Jane Lenore, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure for us too. You are a really good interviewer. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. 
My guests today were Jane Burka and Lenora Ewan. They are the authors of the book, Procrastination, Why You Do It, What to Do About It Now. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about their work at procrastinationwhyoudoit.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash procrastination, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the show, I've gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate you taking one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps us out a lot. And if you've done that already, please share the show with your friends. The more the merrier around here. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay 